right, all right. Welcome to episode five of The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. My name is Christian A. Stetler, and I am a professor in the social work department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And this morning, I'm broadcasting live from Auk Bay in Juneau, Alaska, as you can see behind me. And I'm fortunate enough to be blessed with two co-hosts today, Robin and Nico from our own program. How's it, guys? Awesome. I'm so excited to be here. Maybe a little too excited. Like, I'm like jittery and yeah, know, well, ready to go. It's afternoon for you, right? Yeah, it's two o'clock. So East, East Coast time. East Coast time. We've got some snow today. Can't really see it. It's pretty bright, bright and snowy. Well, while Robin may be over on the east, her heart is still in Alaska from everything I can tell. How's it, Nico? Pretty good, Professor Ace. Um, just excited, like Robin. I'm with Robin on that one. I'm excited to share this space with you, and I feel honored to be a, a part of such amazing uh, podcast. Yeah, and Nico's up in Fairbanks. Uh, I think that's like 750 miles north of here or something like that. And so I was laughing because yesterday we had a meeting, and he told, said he told his daughter to get outside and play. It's seven degrees outside. And I was like, seven <laughs> degrees. Go make that's some snowballs, cool. he said. Yep. What about the tablet nowadays? <laughs> All right. Well, we got a really great show planned for you this morning. And like maybe it's the afternoon for you, like Robin, but either way, it should be a great show. So be sure to stay tuned in. And in fact, this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to flip the script, switch it up. Um, so instead of bringing in a guest interview, my co hosts are going to interview me once we get to the heart of the show. Um, but as always, before we do that, there's a few things we want to cover. Yes, this project, The Critical Social Worker, is supported by the Social Work Department at University of Alaska Fairbanks. However, the opinions expressed on this podcast, be it by the host, guest, or listeners calling in, do not necessarily reflect the values of the Social Work Department, College of Liberal Arts, the University of Alaska Fairbanks, or any of its affiliates. The opinions and ideas shared belong to the speaker alone. So if you hear something you don't like, blame the speaker, not the, uh, not the Department of Social Work. Um, thanks, Robin. And as you might notice, uh, some of these things that we're reading are a little bit condensed. We've broken some things down since the last episode. But Nico, you mind, uh, you mind sharing our shortened mission statement? Yeah, no problem, Professor. The Critical Social Worker podcast unfolds unique stories and diverse perspectives to foster a critical dialogue empathy and understanding for all listeners. Through storytelling grounded in social work values, we aim to change ourselves and the world one story at a time. Appreciate it, Nico. And one of those underlying themes in that mission statement is obviously the idea of telling stories. So here at The Critical Social Worker, we believe that each individual is multi-layered with unique life experiences. And we wanna help unfold some of those layers through the stories that we tell so that we can learn and grow from them. Stories that can help us build critical consciousness. Yeah, let's give a shout out to the UAF Social Work Department. I feel really lucky to have found my way here. Um, as an adult student looking for a career change, I'm, uh, my heart is in Alaska, as the professor said. So I'm an Alaska Native person, all the way in Ohio. So I'm really passionate about Native issues and identity, and that was a really big part of why I chose UAF, um, because they have such a strong focus on Native issues and identity. So I feel really validated and, you know, love hearing about my people and learning. 
So not to mention the fact that the teachers are top notch and come to find out the BSW program is one of the highest rated in the country. And they offer in-state tuition to online students, which is really awesome for me. Overall, it's a great place and I'm super thankful to be here and to be here on the podcast. Thanks, Professor. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for the, thanks for the uh, kind words about the program. And if you want to know more about um, the University of Alaska Fairbanks Social Work Program, um, search it, look us up on Facebook or just Google University of Alaska Fairbanks Social Work, UAF Social Work, and they'll take you right to us. You can get more information or you can always hit me up if you, if you have any questions. Um, so, but what about you? Do you have a story to tell? Are you interested in coming on the show as a guest to talk story? If so, please hit me up with an email at castetler at alaska.edu. That's C-A-S-T-E-T-T-L-E-R at alaska.edu. All right. Now, before we get to our main event, there's something I want to talk about first real quick. And so, Nico, I was wondering if you could read our um, principles number one and number two. No problem, Professor. So the first one would be foster critical dialogue, reflection, and critical consciousness. Number two would be use storytelling as a form of education. Appreciate it. So before we officially get started, I want to invoke those two principles, those first two principles. Um, I want to say that, you know, I'm usually a private person and I've refrained from talking about parts of my past for quite a long time. Um, you know, I always kind of viewed it as people, it might hinder me. Um, people might look at me different, differently or judge me. Um, but, you know, not, as I've moved forward in life, um, those, many of those, these things are, are far behind me. And um, what use are they if I can't, are, are they to me or to the world if I can't share them so that other people might learn from my own experiences? Um, so, you know, I've kind of, like I said, I always looked at it as, you know, I wanted people to, to judge me for who I am now and the work that I'm doing now, not based upon, you know, having long hair or tattoos or about things that I've done or been involved in in the past. I always wanted people to judge me for the good work that I do now. Um, but like I said, I realize my stories can be helpful. And, um, I want to use my story today, my struggles, my successes, um, in the hopes that it can foster, foster critical dialogue, reflection, and build critical consciousness and that we might learn something along the way for all of us. And so with that little um, disclaimer, let's get this episode started. officially to episode five of The Critical Social Worker. I'm your host, Christian, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Nico and Robin. Uh, but before we go any further, we're going to flip the script, switch it up, and, I, and for this episode and this portion, I want to turn it over to Robin and Nico. It's on you. Yeah, we're flipping it up, switching it up, and turning things over on our professor, Christian A. Stetler. So as a student of the professor's I've had the extraordinary opportunity to explore my own stories 
through his class and uncover new dimensions and layers of my identity that I've never considered before. I've been taking on this like journey of self-discovery through my own stories and connected with classmates through their stories. You know, we share things like struggles and successes and accomplishments. Like we all know how those things feel. So it really reminds us that we're not alone in this crazy human journey. There's been something missing though, the professor's stories. Where did he come from? Where has he been? Why is he so critical? And how many beanies does he own? I'm looking forward to learning all these things and more. How about you, Nico? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm curious about the beanies too, Robin. Uh, so like Robin, I'm a former student of Professor Ace, uh, but not just a former student. Um, he was my first uh, social work professor. And coming from the inner city, there weren't too many social workers that looked like me. So there was a perception that social workers looked a certain way, whether that was male or females. Um, but seeing Professor Ace on his level was truly motivational for me, and it reassured me that I was in the right place. Within the first two weeks, I was able to have a video chat with Professor Ace, and I could feel this genuine energy, and I knew at that point he would be someone that I would look, for, look to in the future for guidance. I'm excited to learn more about Professor Ace, uh, uh, the professor that set the tone for me and many others uh, beginning their path in social work. Okay, Nico, but I feel like something's missing, you know, we don't know the professor all that well, so we should probably throw in some quotes from people who really know him. You know what, Robin? I don't think that's a bad idea. If you're familiar with Professor Ace's podcast, you might or might not remember Professor Ace's close friend, L.A. We reached out to L.A., and this is what he had to say. Christian is a serious uh, academic intellectual a devoted family man, esteemed colleague, and an invaluable, trustworthy friend to have in your time of need. My brother is always in search of an agenda of his soul. He contributes to the health, safety, and well-being of uh, whatever community he plants his flag. Therefore, the world is indeed a better, safer, and more beautiful place while in his presence. So well said. So we also got one from Professor Stetler's partner and wife, Alicia, who says Christian is the most thoughtful, intelligent, creative, and inspiring person I have ever met. Not only is he a great dad, husband, and friend, he gives an abundance of energy to making this world a brighter, happier, and more conscious place. One of my favorite qualities is that while he's constantly evolving and growing, he also encourages and inspires everyone around him to do the same. Well said, Robin, well said. Um, so as you guys know, and many of us know who have kids, our kids are around us most of the time. And one, thing's, one thing about kids, they often reflect exactly what they see. Um, so we were able to get a few statements from uh, Professor Ace's kids. Um, excuse me, Professor Ace, if I tear these names up a bit, but I'm going to give it my best. Uh, Naya, dad reads a lot of books to us. It's so cool. Leah, I like that our dad tucks us into bed and likes to do stuff with us. I love doing school with dad. Uh, Zade, I like uh, that dad cooks lunch for us every day and helps us with schoolwork. <laughs> 
Oh, I love that. Okay, one more. This fellow student has been a critical social worker podcast super fan, tuning in and participating in every episode. Our fellow BSW student, Deb, says, I've only just met this lovely human being by way of a class called Human Behavior in the Social Environment. In the short time I've known Christian, I have felt supported and cheered on in this difficult endeavor of a university education by way of asynchronous learning. Christian's style of teaching is direct. I so appreciate that. But he also has shown that he cares about me as an individual. I've struggled with full-time school along with full-time work. I've expressed this and have been validated and encouraged to take care of myself. This is Christian being real and reminding me to give myself a break with all of this. As an older student returning after some time, I feel comfortable in a class where learning is relevant to life. It can be useful in social work and also in life in general. The assignments are interesting and fun, and I really learn something new each week. Aside from the platform we use for assignments, I do love to learn. Social work is is good work, and it's caring for each other. In a perfect world, we would just care about each other, and social workers wouldn't be someone you'd make an appointment with. Some people are natural social workers and notice when others are having difficulty are in need. Professor Stetler is one. He comes across, and I'm honored to be a part of his class. He's also pretty cool. I think of him as a cool cat for sure. Peace, Deb. All right, all right, all right. Uh, so Professor Ace, tell us the story. Yeah, well, now you got me reflecting. I wasn't prepared for all that. Um, <laughs> So I really appreciate that. I really appreciate you taking the time and and, and the thoughtfulness that, that putting something together like that requires. Uh, appreciate it. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. I really appreciate it. And to everybody that said those kind words um, about me, I appreciate it. And I think, you know, it's a good place to start because it's, it's hard. I shouldn't say it's hard. I'm not used to, like I'm talking about over my entire lifespan, to hearing such things about myself. Um, and so it's always kind of still kind of a little bit strange to me, and I have to, I'm still used to processing it um, and going through it. But um, I'm not going to talk too much about my childhood, at least right now. But, you know, I was born to young parents, you know, out of just straight finishing up high school. And it was, uh, they were young parents. Let me just say that. And, um, you know, I think, you know, as we age and we get older, we learn and we have more skills and what and one not to care for children. And so I, I feel very fortunate that I had children a little bit later that allows me, um, allowed me some extra time to take care of my life and myself to prepare, to prepare for that, um, that big challenge that is parenting. But, um, you know, some people, in some ways I wasn't cared for in the way that I needed, let me put it that way. And I grew up, um, and let me preface this for a minute, because I don't want to come across like I'm just like, saying that my childhood was like terrible or something like that. I had lots and lots of people that loved me significantly. I have like, you know, my mom always took care of me when, when I was sick. I got plenty of like really positive memories of taking trips with my father, things like that. My stepdad, you know, taught me many of the skills that I use today out here in Alaska, like fishing and how to start a fire and, you know, real practical skills, um, stuff like that. So I don't mean to, I'm not, not saying that. I'm just saying, you know, young parents, um, in some ways, my caregivers weren't, weren't able to provide certain things or care for me the way that I needed. And so as I moved through life, um, I was insecure and I was anxious 
And I lied about everything because I didn't know who I was, I think. Um, and, you know, we moved to this small town from the city to the small town when I was, uh, I think I was seven. And I was pretty much just bullied relentlessly. Um, a lot of people I tell that in today's day and age, like they don't really believe that that's true, but I was really, really bullied and I really had very little friends. Um, but I had this, like one thing that made me stand out from other kids is I had this like strong sense of curiosity that I wanted to know everything and learn everything. And, you know, this is way back in the days, you know, it was long distance to call like 10 minutes down the road. Um, so we didn't have internet and, and things like that. And so I had this freedom in this town that we lived in. And by, I, st I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and um, had like free reign. So I got to ride my bike all over this. I mean, it's a small town um, population wise, but you know, it's spread out over a large area and I was able to ride around and I did all sorts of crazy fun things, you know, as, as a kid. And that was able to like uh, build kind of the foundation that I have for today. That's the first start of the foundation was that freedom and that curiosity that I had. But as I progressed through life, you know, I thought that I would never amount to anything, although I hoped I would. And I think how most people, like especially at school and things like that, most things were reflected to me that I wouldn't. I remember going to a, a, like a information session in the library for early college. And I was kind of just like laughed out of there by the kid, by the other kids and by the, I don't remember what the guy's title was, but you know, yeah, you're right, Ace, you're not going to early college. What are you thinking? I went on and um, when I graduated from, I, I actually failed out of high school and I went to an alternative school where it was kind of work at your own pace. And uh, I have a, I could share a little funny story about the first, my first day there for the first week, at least you had to go through like an intensive week where they prepared you for the, for this alternative school and the the guy that was running it um he's he's trying to get us because you have to pass like a basic level test and so part of that was math and all of us struggled with math and so he's trying to teach us all these things and we're kind of like you know half the people were probably high in the class to be honest with you um and then he's like all right all right forget it and he's got this i think it was probably a chalkboard back then and he's like he's like all right tyler Pretend you got an ounce of marijuana. You want us, and I don't remember exactly what he did, but like half the class was like, oh, yeah. Oh, that's, oh, yeah. that's, that's it. I get it. Um, I thought that was very funny at that time. But anyways, I graduated from this alternative school, was able to make up all my credits and graduate. And then I tried to go to college at Weber, at this local school called Weber State University. And same thing, I got laughed out of there. I remember I was in a class with my girlfriend at the time, actually. English 101, I'm guessing, is what it was. And I sat in the back and, you know, I had bad experiences with school up until that point. Um, but I wanted to learn. But like, I don't, I, it's hard for me to look back and remember exactly. But that teacher called me out, that professor called me out and said in front of the whole class and told me she thought I wasn't ready for college. And I don't remember if that was because I was late or disorganized or what, but she said I wasn't ready. And obviously I wasn't. So a couple of years go by maybe a year or so goes by. And, um, you know, one of the downfalls of going to somewhere like an alternative school puts you, uh, not saying that everyone's bad that goes to an alternative school, but obviously a lot of people that go to alternative school have failed out or failed at the, the other system for various reasons. And so it connected me with a lot of other people that, you know, were into different things like drugs and other things. <laughs> and um, I began using methamphetamine like I would guess at 19, I'm not officially sure, 18 or 19. And uh, just on the weekends, 
I had a, I actually had a some guys that I used to use marijuana with, you know, my age, and uh, one of them, um, his mom got out of prison, and I remember we were outside. They had like this trailer outside, and we were outside doing something, whatever, probably something not good. And uh, the mom invited us down, and we we smoked methamphetamine out of a light bulb. And I remember the first time that I did it, like it's exactly like what it's described as. It rang my bell, and I was cracked uh, out of my mind, basically. Um, and I went on to use methamphetamine like on the weekends here and there for about a year um, until it completely took over my lifestyle. I, I guess I'm not telling the story right. So I was kind of using on the side, like I said, and then I became involved with actually the, the friend's mom who I mentioned that just got out of prison. Well, her sister, um, her name was Marla Valencia, and she had a house and, and some kids that were my, you know, spread out around my age. And I became friends with them and uh, started hanging out with them more and more. And I was working at um, Citibank at that time. And I was actually, it was like one of the first successful things I had. The manager was telling me what a great worker I was. And I was really confident. She wanted me to write this report that I really couldn't do. Um, but on the other hand, spending time out at this, uh, the Valencia household, um, I became more and more involved in easier ways to make money, friends and whatnot. And um, I became like, like the main, I don't know what you would call it. Well, I became uh, Marla Valencia's main man as far as like running her methamphetamine and her cocaine around. And I was rewarded big time for that with free drugs, money, friendship, respect. Um, and uh, I quit my job at the at Citibank. Um, you know, it's easier and funner to make money in other ways at that time than, than going to work. I'm in a place that I, I, even though I was successful in some ways, I still felt uncomfortable. And, um, you know, let me, let me step back just a, just a little bit. Um, in childhood, you know, I, I mentioned I was anxious and insecure and I had, didn't have, I lacked self-worth and confidence and that followed me into adulthood. Um, but when I used the methamphetamines and became involved in that life, it gave me a sense of courage um, that I had never had before. And so I was kind of able in, in, to partially step out of that shell that I had lived in forever. And I became, instead of like being, you know, perhaps the timid and the made fun of, I became the opposite. Not saying I made fun of everyone, but I became like, you didn't want to mess with me. I was, a, I was, I was wild, um, you know, like ready to square up for just about everything. And people feared me in some ways. I'm embarrassed about that to look back because that's not who I want to be at all. Um, so I went, this is the story I want to tell. Three parts. The first part, you know, I was this slumped kid that was afraid of everything, that lied about everything, that had no self-worth. And then when I progressed into adulthood, into that street life, my confidence went up, but in the, some, of the, some of the wrong ways. I still had all that insecurity. I still lied a lot. I was still anxious about things. Um, but I was respected in some ways, I guess you'd say, um, you know, and just, to, I just wanted to share um, a couple little stories about that time, just to show you like how wild it was looking back. I still don't like understand how some of it worked out or happened. Well, said so I stayed at the Valencia household. Well, the second oldest son, Dustin, um, I'm not sure how old he was. I'm guessing like 25 at that time. 
but he had just got out of prison a while back. And uh, I guess, I don't know the whole exact story, but committed some more crimes, went on the run from his parole. And he was on the front page of the newspaper that morning as uh, Northern Utah's most wanted for that week or month. I'm not sure what it was. Um, and when we saw that paper, he was in the house with us. Um, so obviously, if the U Northern Utah's most wanted is in the house with you, you know, police are going to be looking. Well, later that night, there was a, we had a party, kind of, or like, a, I think it just accumulated naturally. People came over and... The, basically, the house became flooded with police and all sorts of people outside, like sedans, uh, black sedans, police cars, sheriff cars, everything. And, and they were there looking for him. And we just hid out and locked the doors um, and uh, waited it out. And eventually they left. And so I don't really know under, or understand why this happened. But when they left, we, were, we lived on a dead-end street next to the freeway. And we had a friend come and pick us up in a little junk car. And we ran out and got in the car and he sped out around the dead end around the out we went on the freeway and i thought for sure we were done for no cops or anything and we got away so um you know it's one of those blessings that happen in life or maybe it's fortuitous luck but you know like if you look at the at what might have happened had i got caught and went to jail or prison um i wouldn't be probably i shouldn't say wouldn't but it's, there's a high chance that i never was able never would have been able to get out of that that cycle um, another time, um, I was asked to go with this other guy. Everybody's always just get out of prison, but this guy, his name is Tomas. And, um, I was asked by Marla to go ride with him to, to do a drop, I guess. I don't remember exactly, but for some reason he had asked me to sit in the back seat. We went and picked this guy up and it was this other guy and he had this big gold chain on and all this, these rings and jewelry. And apparently those guys had a conflict. So this guy gets in the car and the guy Tomas pulls out and puts a gun to the other guy's head. He's like, Ace, take his jewelry off, take his wallet. And so what am I going to do in that situation? Right. And, um, so I, I followed his directions. And after that, that guy was mad at me, obviously thought I had planned this with the Tomas. And so to make a long story short, uh, a lot of people got arrested in that time. The lady I was living with Marla, she got arrested. Um, and I had people looking for me that didn't, that wanted to find me, that weren't going to do good things to me. And so I kind of like hid out for a while. And I had inherited these two pit bulls from Marla's other son, Ryan, that went to prison. So I had these two dogs and I used to just walk around town for like, probably like six months, uh, staying at different people's houses. Um, my addiction, this is where my addiction really increased because I lost all that power. I lost all the connections. So it just was the drugs at that point. So. Um, pretty much at one point I was sleeping on people's doorsteps with the two dogs. Um, at some point Marla had got out of jail and she took her dogs back, took her son's dogs back. And so then I was pretty much alone. And I remember we were staying out at this, um, car shop, this guy, this, this guy that used meth amphetamines lived in this car, uh, ran a car shop. We stayed out there for a while with him and, um, him and this other guy, this, again, just this, this guy was a big white guy, but he just got out of prison and his name was, his nickname, at least, was Goose. And um, I remember this really mean guy. But he, both the guy that owned the car shop and this guy Goose, they fell asleep. And so I stole all their stuff. And I left and I went. My plan was to sell it all and like work my way back to the top where I was. But really, I was just a lowly drug addict at that time. And I went to another house. And despite my 
intent to sell it. We used all the marijuana and all the methamphetamine. I passed out. I woke up in the morning. The lady who I looked at like her, and let me um, walk back a little bit. When I was first using methamphetamine, I had a friend named Bubba who's a little more deep into it than me. And one day he asked me to come pick him up and I picked him up from this house. And I went in there and I was like, Bubba, what are you doing? Like, why would you be in a house like this? This is disgusting. You're better than this. Why well, woke up in that house? That's the house I woke up in that morning. Um, and the lady that lived there, she had, it was really strange. She had like oxygen tank and would smoke cigarettes and marijuana and methamphetamine all day. She asked me to go to the store and get her some cigarettes. And so I took the money, walked to the store to get cigarettes. And as I was walking to the store, I said to myself, this ain't it for me. I'm done. And so I walked to the store. And this shows you my, my knowledge of nutrition at that time. I uh, went to the store and bought a box of donuts. So I was walking. I was eating the donut because I was so hungry. And I could only eat like a donut and a half before I felt sick. I kept walking. And I walked like five miles, I don't know how many, like five miles, I would guess, to the hospital and asked if I could check myself into rehab. They said they didn't have a rehab there. So, but they had another one at the other hospital. So I called my mom from there. She took me over there, bought me a, a quarter pounder or something, scarfed it down, dropped me off at rehab. And I stayed there for 30 days. It was 26 days, I think. Um, and this is where my story shifts a little bit as well. I bought into recovery 150% compared to, some pe to most people. I would... Uh, I worked those 12 steps. If any of you are familiar with those, I worked them to the bone. Um, I got a sponsor. I went, I didn't have no job at that time. I had no car, I had no money. So I would walk to meetings every day. Uh, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. This would be like, what, like 20 years ago, 19 years ago at this point. And um, there was even this place called the Madhouse. It was like in the middle of the city. And uh, I used to walk by it, actually, when I was using drugs and whatnot, and I used to think it was a party house. But really what it was was like a Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous house, and they, there was always coffee and cigarettes there. You could meetings going all day long, so I used to go sit in that house, and that shows you how different the times have changed. You could sit in that, in that little business house and smoke cigarettes. Um, I used to go there every day, and one day when I was walking home from that place, it's the closest I ever came to going back to drugs. I had this friend that was kind of like a little brother to me, um, I think his name was Jesse Martinez, but his nickname was Little Lazy. He had a lazy eye, and he drove by me when I was walking home from there. He stopped. He's like, Ace, Ace. He's talking to me, and he's, I was telling him I went to rehab, and he's like, no, you didn't. Don't lie. You didn't. You, Ace would never go to rehab, whatever. And then we're talking. He's like, well, have you seen Ryan and Dustin? They moved over here. That's the Valencias. And I was like, no, no. He's like, well, let's go over there. We're going over there, and my heart was beating fast, and I was trying to decide what I would do. And kind of I had I made about a 50% chance that, you know, if there was drugs there, I would partake. And I got there, and uh, they jumped me for an old debt, whooped my ass, whooped my butt badly. So I went home all bloody. Uh, and that, that, I swear one more time, that ass whooping saved me from using drugs again. So I thank them for that, actually. I'm grateful that they did that to me. Um, I've seen... I looked them up once in a while. Uh, a lot of those people that I used to be around with, all those people are in prison or dead. All of them, not one, um, is still around. All the people I went to rehab with, I don't know any of them anymore. I don't know what happened to them. I thought, you know, you all say that you're going to make it out and grow together. Don't know where one of them is at. 
I have like one or two friends that I met after that are still kind of around um, distantly. Um, so I made it out. And then uh, my dad's friend suggested that I go and get a, apply for this job at a, um, a, a group home for, for troubled boys. And I didn't think there's any way in hell they'd hire a guy like me, but they did. And I was really good at it. Um, I saw those boys in a way that most people didn't. And they saw me in a way that, you know, maybe they saw me in themselves, reflected on themselves, I guess you'd say. And uh, worked my way up through that and ended up at a, another related treatment facility, which was like 100 kids, male and female, all of them from out of state. So they were, these were um, black kids from back east, Philadelphia, Chicago, uh, Washington, D.C., some, a few from California, lots of uh, native kids from South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana, Alaska, and Hawaii. And there were some white kids from like South Dakota. There's a white kid from Hawaii. But um, another real quick story about that place. My first week on the job, you know, they put you through like training on what to do. My first week after going through that training, I'm in the cafeteria. Uh, with the unit was called B East. It was the conduct disorder unit, like 30 boys. And they were split evenly between black, the black kids from back East, pretty much most of, most of them from Philly and uh, the native and the white kids stuck together for some reason. And they sat at the same table Well, I'm watching. And one of the Philly kids is walking over to the other table with the chair and he straight up smashes like three of the other kids with the chair. And the whole cafeteria is like an all on, fight like a racial war basically is what it looked like and i'm like i'm the only one in here what am i supposed to do here and so that's what kind of job that was um and fortunately at that job too like same thing even though it was a different population of kids i really connected with them and you know i was the guy that everybody called when there was a kid that they were afraid of i was the i was the guy they called over the, to de-escalate the situation um, and that was cool. And I appreciated that. It made me feel good that those kids liked me and, and they respected me. Um, but that gets old quick, putting out fires over and over and over and over and over again, especially, you know, when sometimes it's the staff that's putting up, that's building those fires and asking you to come put it out. But anyways, I worked my way up and I was supervisor. Way up and was supervisor there for several years. Loved the job. Loved everything about it as far as, like, I loved all my coworkers. Um, I, loved, I loved the kids. And we got, it was like a ma and pa type of treatment center, you know? So, like, we built it from the ground up, and then they hit some financial troubles, and they sold it to a place called Universal Health Services, UHS. And they also own, like, what you might hear the problems that, or they, at least they used to, I'm not sure about today, like, North Star Hospital. So they, so basically Universal Health Services goes around the country and buys up all the treatment centers. And then they come in and they tell you nothing's going to change. And then they fire all the administration and all the whatever, all the higher ups, and they set everything down. And it becomes all about making things with the children. It came, became all about like cutting down staff. Like, for example, it's a four to one ratio at a treatment facility, uh, uh, four kids to one staff member. And so, like, if you had five kids on a unit, for example, um, then you would need two staff because it's over four. But when um, UHS bought us out, they started counting everyone into that. And so they would count like teachers in the classroom. They would count nurses. 
they would count the supervisor. And so you had these like units running like with 12 real badass kids with like sometimes one or two staff. And so it was just terrible. It was a terrible, became a terrible job. Um, kind of, we should talk about that later where, where a lot of social work is going. Um, but anyways, so I'm supervisor there. I'm starting to, I still love the kids, but I'm starting to dislike the job more and more. And I get an opportunity to go to, to it was called Barrow. Then it's now uh, went back to the traditional name of Utiagovic up on the uh, Arctic Ocean, furthest northern town in the United States. I went up there, um, with, had a job with the Arctic Slope Native Association, and uh, started taking classes at UAF. And uh, I'm not going to tell much more of that because you have. A, I think you might ask me questions about it, about how that all happened. But um, graduated BSW from Fair. I ended up did my last year in Fairbanks. Uh, it was dark and cold. I was lonely. You know, fair, you you. You know, Nico Fairbanks has a lot of men compared to women and, and whatnot, and I was lonely. And so I wanted to go somewhere that was warm, and there was a lot of people. And I went to uh, Honolulu, um, was accepted to both Hawaii Pacific University and University of Hawaii, ended up at University of Hawaii. But I did take a class at HPU where I was fortunate enough to meet my wife, who was also pursuing an M MSW. Graduated with my MSW. We can talk more about that later. Um, but I was still anxious and I still had low self-worth and I still saw myself as cursed almost. Like I didn't, I didn't believe I had any opportunity to have a family of my own or to have children. I thought it had passed. I was like 34 at this point, 33. I thought it had passed. Um, like I didn't, I just didn't have what I needed. So like I said, I'd went from this slumped over person to this person that was full of power, but I was also tumultuous and you know, going on, like, lots of conflicts in my life. Um, and through... ...per se, or like a foundation, it's hard to be confident. It's hard to do other things because you're always anxious about, you know, what's going to happen or, like, being lonely or all these, all these different things. So meeting Alicia and... and the series of events that followed getting married and having children and the, the family that we've created has resolved so much of that because I have a, such a strong foundation. I mean, I could have never asked for a, I never dreamed that I would have, maybe I dreamed of it, but I never really believed that someone would want to be with me like that long-term. breath, if that makes sense. And there's more to it than that, but like such, you know, like a universal primitive thing, basically, you know, you, everybody has to breathe to stay alive from the moment you're born, you have to breathe to stay alive. But many of us don't pay attention to it. I know I didn't. Uh, actually, some guy when I was in rehab 20, 19 years ago came in and talked about it and I thought he was weird. So what the hell is this guy talking about? Um, but once I learned to focus on my breath, Anything became possible. Um, and the breath made me start to listen, you know, when I started to get agitated about something or something was bothering me. I'd start to breathe, and I could come back here to the present moment, and I could, I could deal with it. And further than that, you know, I talked to Nico about this a bit yesterday, but 
when I was a kid, I had a voice inside my, like inside me, not like a literal voice, but like there was like a conscience in there. And it was, it would tell me things. And oftentimes it didn't make sense with the way that things that were happening in the world and the world's hard. And so that voice got shut down. And um, through the breath, I found that I heard that voice again as an adult and through learning other things, but I, I found that voice again. And once I started listening to it, it uh, literally, Or, or whatever, I typically do the wrong thing and I make mistakes. Or if I do things spontaneously today, I can make mistakes. If I respond to somebody instantly, I can still fall into the same traps that I had before. Um, but today, you know, that went from me being this slumped kid with no confidence to being this dude that was full of power, willing to fight everyone, not taking no crap from nobody, to like this person that like, now my power comes from Nobody can take it from me in any circumstance. You know, I'm right or wrong, which sometimes I am wrong. Um, I always stand tall. And There's nothing that, nothing that can happen to me. There's nothing that people could take away from me that could bring me lower than where I've already been. Um, and so I work through life today with confidence and with power from within. And um, it, there's one big point I wanted to make about this is when I was in rehab and when I found some new power at that time, um, if any of you know about the 12 steps, well, they all begin about powerlessness and admitting how you're powerless and that you need to turn to God. And that helped me at that time. I used to say a prayer every night, you know, about letting go of my will and like turning it over to God. Um, but it didn't really. Like as in, you know, letting, letting go. And so it was positive in that way. But as I moved forward in life, I took, uh, when I was in Hawaii at UH, I had this, um, this chance to take a class with, I don't know if any of you all know who she is, but Angela Davis, she's a black civil rights activist, still alive, obviously today, but um, really popular in the 60s and 70s for some things that I don't have time to talk about right now. But I had a class with her and she, I learned this thing that she says. She, so another part of, um, of, of recovery is the serenity prayer when you're going to rehab most um oftentimes if you go to a meeting a recovery meeting they'll use the serenity prayer to prepare to, to close uh, the courage to change I, the things i can and the wisdom to know the difference and so it goes along with that like kind of like powerlessness thing that you need to ask for help and i'm not saying we don't need to ask for help um but angela davis says it as I am no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things I can no longer accept. And I use that principle for myself and for things that happen in the world. Um, I no longer take things for granted that I can't change them or I can't do anything about them. Uh, I, have, I am the ultimate overlord of my own body, of my own feelings, um, of my own reactions, um, the decisions I make and the way I conduct myself. Um, so I... Combine that with that conscience, that voice. I think Rastafarians call it I and I consciousness. I utilize that with that sense of power and breath to make all my decisions. I shouldn't say all my decisions, most of my decisions. If somebody's, if I receive a message that I don't like or that bothers me, that brings up that anxiety, if somebody says something to me, if I respond instantly, it's probably going to be, it's not probably, it's going to be a reactionary, sometimes with vitriol, because I feel these things.
for something, I have the opportunity today, instead of reacting to things, I take my time, I breathe through it, and um, respond once I've come back from a place of power and confidence, if that makes sense. And, it, and I mean that in a positive way, not like I have power over other people, but like... Um, total opposite um, approach than the way that I used to where I was filled with anxiety and fear. I'm not afraid of things anymore. I'm not afraid of, of, of dealing with things. Um, in all circumstances. And that's not always enough, but it's all that I got. And so... Um, yeah, I thought uh, this might be a good time to open it up to any further questions. I know I went a little bit further or longer than I intended. Yeah, that's a really exciting story with a lot of like turns. And it makes me think of, you know, they say that the difficulties in our lives kind of be if you hadn't experienced these really difficult things i mean could you have developed so much you know spiritually emotionally without having experienced these really difficult situations yeah professor and thank you for sharing that uh that's that's a deep story and you know i can i can i can relate to some of what you were saying because you know unfortunately i experienced uh, some of the similar things that you you went through. Um, and one of your previous uh, podcasts, you had L.A. on, and um, he talked about the different people. There were three different type of people. Um, there were there were people that, uh, you know, had a great life and because they didn't have a struggle, um, they pursued the, the, show, the social work field because they felt guilty. And then there were your people, um, I believe he said that were, uh, that were, um, that had some kind of tra traumatic experience as an adolescence. And that's what drew them to social work. And then you had your people that had, you know, had some kind of experience, but they had healed and, and they were back to, to give guidance. So I wonder, and I'll ask, you towards the social work field in any way? Yes and no. I mean, it's a good question. This, this is what I like to say. I didn't choose social work. Social work chose me. Um, and part of that obviously is due to the circumstances of my background and the experiences that I went through. But, um, you know, I didn't look for a job working with kids. My dad's friend told me, sent me over there. And then I went through that system up. You know, I didn't intend to do that. Um, and then... Even, in, even when I chose to major in social work um, as a BSW student, I was actually had no idea what, I don't think, it's hard to look back and know what you did know or you didn't know, but I don't think I really even knew what social work was, even despite know what you did know or you didn't know, but I don't think I really even knew what social work was, even despite working with kids for several years and supervising a facility, I didn't rightly know what social work was or what a social work degree was, and I think I looked towards psychology, because that was the closest thing I could figure would be in that realm. And so I, for, uh, I think my first semester at working with kids for several years and supervising a facility, 
I don't, didn't rightly know what social work was or what a social work degree was. And I think I looked towards psychology because that was the closest thing I could figure would be in that realm. And so I, for, uh, I think my first semester at UAF, I took like intro to psych, intro to social work electives, checking it out. And I had a, it's funny, I'll show you how much the times have changed, is that I had a, my intro to social work class was distance. I was in, up in Barrow, but uh, it was with uh, Dr. Richenda, who's obviously still with the program, but it was on the phone. So we just called up on the phone and we all talked on the phone. I had several classes like that back in them days. Um, so we didn't have Zoom or anything like that. Uh, I don't think the internet in Alaska would have even worked for something like that. And that's only 10 years, like not even 10 years ago. Um, and so I, was, I took the class and I don't remember exactly how it came about, but Dr. Richenda contacted me and she told me I thought I would be good for their, their program. And so um, I was invited to that. And uh, that's how I literally got into social work um, since then. Um, and so, yeah, my, my past experiences are obviously what like pushed me in that direction. But if you Certain things had to happen that wasn't what I planned out or intended. Um, but, you know, trust in the universe you typically works out for me. And so this is where it's put me. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here. It really struck me that you said that you had completely bought into the recovery process when you were going through it. Like what it seems like that's kind of like one of the biggest obstacles people have in going through recovery is that buy-in. So what do you think it was for you that was like, just all in? Almost every class I took from second grade to until I failed out. Um, and, but that wasn't because I didn't have energy or because I wasn't curious or because I didn't want to do things. I was just messed up, honestly, and I couldn't sit there and do home. I couldn't sit there and do homework, but I always had this like fierce, like curiosity. And, and like I said, like I'd, I'd ride my bike like miles and miles to do a simple thing like that wouldn't hold me back. And even I, I won't get into it all. But um, when I got into recovery, like I bought into it because attitude where people respected me in a positive way and people respected me because I was, uh, I was, um, still angry young man. Um, so I had, I just had this drive to like do something and I didn't know, like as a kid, I didn't know what to do with it. And as a young adult, I didn't know what to do with it, but I had somewhere like there was these things always going on and I could just keep going and going and going and the worst thing for me, like that gets me in trouble is not having enough to do or not something to do and being stuck and feeling trapped. And so, you know, being able to walk around the city and go to different places and go to the look inward at myself and have people talk to me about my, like my sponsor would talk to me about myself. Nobody had ever done that with me before. And so like, it was interest. It was interesting. And it was a place for me to put my energy. Um, and, you know, like back in them days, I'm, I think recovery, I'm sure everywhere is different, but, I think it slipped in some ways, you know, since the days of internet and whatnot. But back then, they had all sorts of stuff going on. You know, they had like softball Sundays where they all went to the park and barbecued to go play softball. They had a basketball. They had volleyball. 
Um, and so that's why I did it. And uh, I guess the problem with it is, for me with recovery, is that although it worked in some ways and helped me, it most definitely wasn't the right way for me long term. Um, there's a lot of things about recovery that get people stuck. And uh, yeah, we'll talk about that another time. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that as well, Professor. Um, so for for people that have had a rough upbringing like you and I, um, is there kind of any advice that you have as far as um, recovery or, you know, self-care or anything like that uh, prior to uh, pursuing the social work field? Or is it do you feel it's something that you know, we could address at the same time uh, because, you know, a lot of times we go through a lot of stuff in life and, you know, um, you know, like 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 me, for instance, I, you know, I've went through a lot in, in my life as a child uh, and a teenager. And now I'm pursuing this degree in social work because kind of like you for a while there, I, I've been doing social work, but I just never put one or two together until a couple of Uh, to become better social workers and better people in, in general. I think everybody's path is unique and um, I can't speak for what everybody else should do. And I think both ways, like, you know, finding yourself while in the program, like I kind of did and kind of both kind of did and kind of didn't or resolving those things further. But what I would say, like, if you, if you have a troubled childhood, troubled past, and you're still feeling these feelings of anxiety, hopelessness, whatever it is that's plaguing you, there's many different things, depression, uh, just these feelings that you don't know about. I would say, trust yourself in all circumstances. However, oftentimes we don't know who ourself is. We, like, let me, like, if you'd asked me who I was before I moved to Alaska, for example, even after doing all the, the treatment stuff, you know, and I'd say like, oh, well, you know, I'm, Blah, blah, blah. I like this. I like this kind of music. I like so-and-so's my favorite movie. I like, you know, I grew up with the Utah Jazz. I like the Atlanta Braves and the New Orleans Saints and, and all these things. And all these things are like external things that really have nothing to do with me. I'm not saying like if you like a sport, it's bad to like a sports team, teach their own, whatever. I'm just saying that like those things had nothing to do with me. Um, and so... I had to spend a lot of time finding out who I was. And that takes um, listening and it takes self-regulation. And so the best way to be successful, in my opinion, in going into a college program as somebody who has a troubled background is to find that self-regulation, whatever that is. And you're going to have to stop and it can be hard and you got to listen. You know, put your hands on your heart and listen, whatever that is. Go out in nature and listen. Go out and you know, ask for nature to come to you. It sounds silly to some people. But go out there and listen to the trees and listen to... Um, What's going on? Um, and listen inside and try to tune out all that, all that other stuff. Um, I'll tell you some things that I've done over the years that have significantly transformed my life, um, that have made me more able to self-regulate, made me more confident, made me feel better physically and mentally, emotionally. The first thing would be I cut out as much advertising as I could possible. I don't watch television. Once in a while, I watch a, video, uh, 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 a sports game, obviously, that ha a live sporting event that has commercials. I can't help that. 
Um, once in a while, you know, we want to watch there's something that's live, but we don't own we don't own a subscription in our home to live TV. We have subscriptions to we rotate through like different uh, streaming services for our the adults and the kids in my family, but we minimize those commercials. Let me tell you why. Like growing up, right as a, as a kid, I drank a lot of Coca Cola among other sodas and stuff like that. But when I looked at Coca Cola can a red can of Coca Cola, I saw joy. And I saw happiness. And then you watch a commercial, Christmas time, you know, the polar bears are drinking Coke. Everybody's happy. They're drinking it in Home Alone. In every other movie you've ever seen, Coke or, Coke or Pepsi, whoever paid them more, probably. Well, if you look at just, this is just one way to go. Coca-Cola is the easiest place to look at. Man, when they was first making Coke, they was putting Coke. Movie theater. It has something like 36 packets of sugar. Put 36 packets of sugar in your Coke, I mean, in your, in your coffee, and see what that looks like. So basically, Coca-Cola shoves as much sugar as possible into this 12-ounce can or whatever, if you buy in a 30-ounce Big Gulp or something from the movie theater. They're stuffing it full of sugar as much as possible. They stuff it with so much sugar that they put other, other you know, scientific ingredients and in, in, and mixtures in there to make it so that you can, because normally you can't take that much sugar. You gag, gag reflex. Die, but like, for me, like it was just poisoning me. It was making me feel bad. It was making me feel crappy amongst other things. And so as I've come to the stage today, you know, I've realized, well, the people that run Coca-Cola are trying to dupe me and get me to drink that stuff at all, at all, at all, whatever, at, by any means necessary. Those same types of people are going to put sugar, really sugary, sugary commercials on for my kids if they watch cartoons. You know, we watch cartoons in the morning, all three of us when we grew up, I'm sure. So they dupe you, You're, we're duped into things, into believing that things are the way that they are. Um, and as human beings, especially us Americans, we really like what we're comfortable with. You know, we were talking about this yesterday too, like all the lyrics and most popular music is the same, you know, that we just recreate the same kind of movies and scenes over and over and over again. Um, and so we like Coca-Cola because it's familiar. It's been a friendly voice for us, a friendly thing for us since we were a child on television, but that doesn't really reflect what it is in reality. Um, and something like that was hurting me. Another thing was alcohol. Um, some of my, I, I grew up. That I knew drank and they didn't just drink. They drank a lot. And I'm not criticizing anybody because I've drank more than anybody. I mean, I should say more than anybody, but as much as anybody at, at certain times in my life. Um, but then again, I realized that to me at this point, alcohol is poison, even more so than the Coca-Cola poison to my mind, it's poison to my body, it's poison to my soul. I can go out potentially tonight and have a lot of drinks and have a great time. Um, I could also have a lot of drinks and come home and yell at my wife or do something dumb or black out and, 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 and whatever. But almost always um, when I drink a lot, I wake up feeling depressed. But it leads to me feeling depressed and stuff. So 
I moved on to like after rehab and, and whatnot, I turned to alcohol several years down and just drank a lot for years and years and years. And um, like I said, I came to learn that it was poison. And then I looked at it as, you know, well, now that I've acknowledged that it's poison, I could enjoy a little bit here and there um, with no problems. And for the most part, I did. But still, I, I felt there was always this sense of disconnection when it came to it. Um, alcohol has caused me a lot of problems in my life. Um, the only thing that's really benefited me is to have some fun. And, and, and I have had a lot of fun. Um, but once I realized those things, effects of the alcohol, I changed, I still eat crappy in many ways, but I try to eat more, like be aware of what the things that I put into my body as much as possible. And so it allows self-regulation. And then you add in things like breathing, um, exercise, you know, this morning, let me bring it right to this morning. This morning I woke up. I'm anxious about a few things that have happened in recent days. Um, feeling a little bit bad about some things that went that have went down. Nothing super serious, but you know, things that have been on my conscience. And I woke up, a little bit troubled sleep, and I was just feeling down, like really down. You know, I got this show to do today, right? And so I'm like, okay. So I wake up at like six. Shows at ten. Um, I come down. I have some coffee. Whatever, I'm still feeling it, like it's going through it, like my kids, I'm not really interacting with them, I'm kind of distant from my wife, and I'm thinking, and um, you know what, I'm like, you know, I got to change something, I got to do something before this starts, you know, to regulate myself, and so I went outside, I breathed the fresh air, took it in, listened to what was around me, and I came inside and I did uh, a one hour, like, super hard, challenging, challenged myself yoga, practice and came here so that like I burned out all that energy had like this breath of fire on the you all know what that is but this like I look at it as um like I get try to use it to get out all the negative energy so like it's like where you focus on the exhales like <laughs> and um I look at it as like I'm taking in all the powers of the energy and I'm trying to get rid of all of the stuff that is plaguing me and by the time I got to this interview I felt great um and in the past I would have sat there and wallowed in my insecurity I would have sat here on my phone, you know, maybe looked through some stuff that caused me more anxiety and came to this. And I might've done a fine job in the interview, but, you know, I wouldn't have been self-regulated. I would have done it with anxiety and fear. Um, I would have did it feeling, not feeling good physically. Um, and I wouldn't have been in a, in, a, in a good spot. So I know that was a very long-winded answer, but my advice is to whatever path you're on is to seek self-regulation. Find it. Find out what's plaguing you. Is it something that you can control? Some things happen before we know. Like, for example, we can experience trauma, traumatic events as a child before we've created the capacity to create memories and make understanding of them. So that trauma can cause you feelings of anxiety and stress and all these other things going later in life. But you don't have any way to remember what happened. You don't have any way to process through it. Um, so there's a long line of like... I mean, a huge gap on like what kinds of things can affect us, things that we can identify, things that we have no idea about, but they should work degree and finding yourself is to find self-regulation. Be your, when you find yourself, be yourself authentically in all circumstances, even when it feels uncomfortable. Because nobody knows you like you know you. It's your own conscience that's going to judge the things that you've done. It's your, you're the one that has to live with the things. Be yourself in all circumstances um, and know that 
however well you do at finding yourself, at building a foundation, at building self-regulation, at solving the, the burdens of the past, trauma, all these things. despite some of those things never going fully away, is that you have power to regulate yourself and you have a power not to react to the way that you feel. You have the power to take a breath. You have a power to go out in nature. You have the power to exercise. You have the power to control what you intake in your body. You have a power to control the things you intake like commercials. You know, I used to run a radio, uh, a radio program that was called a conscious party. Um, and my tagline was, where we only listen to music that helps elevate us to a higher consciousness. Excuse me, where lyrics matter and we only listen to music. And listen to something over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, then that's going to be what's filling up your mind. You know what I mean? So same thing with what you're watching on TV. And so if you want to be less anxious, if you want to be more self-regulated, then Use, utilize your power and dictate the things that you intake. Everything from food, people, energy, TV, music. You have all the control to regulate those things. The world out there is going to tell you differently, and it's going to try to distract you. Every time you, know, you skip a beat, it's going to try to distract you and bring you down. But you have all the power in the world. I don't care who you are. You have all the power in the yourself, and you have the power... You don't necessarily have the power to do anything you want in the world. I can't go and practice and make the MBA. You know what I mean? It's not happening. Um, but what I can do is be the best possible version of myself right here, right now at 1107 on March 18th. Um, I don't know how I'll be later, uh, but I have the power to be my ultimate self right now. And so does everybody else. But the, but the struggle never, ever stops. Yeah, that's like the power of being critical, right? I mean, questioning and examining everything around us. Like, is this good for me? You know, you know, like what you said about Coke and alcohol. It's just like you get all these constant bombardments from every direction. So you have to really look at everything and say, is this for me? What, is, what are the motives of this outside influence? Um, we got some comments. Deb says the struggle is real. Totally, Deb. And Alexis had a good question. She said, you've shared throughout the course how environment affects each one of us as individuals. Can you please share how your current environment is beneficial to you, such as your location? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, I think there's like a yin and a yang to live in where I live right now. Um, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And just yesterday I saw what I believe was a humpback. I'm not sure, but saw a spout out there. The ocean was, was rough, so I couldn't tell. But in a few months, this place is going to fill up with, with plants and berries and fruit to eat. There's going to be... Uh, humpbacks, multiple humpbacks out there every day, all summer long. There'll be orchids that come by all the time if, you've, if you can be lucky enough to catch them go by. You know, one time last summer, um, I was doing yoga on the deck on a beautiful 80-degree day here in Alaska, 
an orca swam by while I was uh, out there working out, doing yoga. And uh, it, the most beautiful thing about it was when the orcas usually come by, the first thing I do is I got to show everyone. And I grab my phone and I watch it through the lens of my phone. But when I did yoga that day, you know, I just watched the orcas and existed with them as they came by, which was a really beautiful experience. Um, me and my kids, if any of you have ever been to Juneau, uh, around the Auk Recreation Area, Point Louisa, it's our backyard. We get to walk through there every day. The kid, I walk the kids to, to their little nature school there every morning. Um, and we spend tons and tons of time out there. It's truly a blessing. Um, I found, I've spent the last year plus, you know, having a lot of time in solitude. Um, you know, we don't have many friends here in town. We don't have many connections in that regard. You know, it's hard when I work in a different town. You know, I don't, it's not like I go to work and, and whatever. We live, I don't know, like 20 miles outside of town. So we live away from people. And so we're lonely in that way. And we, I, you know, before, uh, you asked where I was at before this, and yeah, it was Honolulu. would be that people are, are very casual in Hawaii and everybody's outside. So there's lots of t room for kids and adults to interact with each other, build relationships and friends. Whereas it's kind of closed off where I live out here. You know, I'm out here in this big house, whereas the whole place is like super wealthy, rich people, and they don't pay no attention to us, really, uh, my family. And so it's kind of lonely out here. Um, so as far as like being involved in nature and finding an attunement, in that regard, uh, this place where I live now is an A+. So we're trying to find that balance. Um, a big reason why we moved away from Hawaii was we were kind of tired of that wear and tear and the grind, especially during the pandemic. Um, as far as where I came from, I have lived, let me say this. So one of the things that is a goal for my future that, um, so let me back up a little bit further. I turned 40 last June and, uh, you know, it's almost like a midlife and it wasn't necessarily a midlife crisis for me, but I was thinking about things and like what I wanted, like what it meant to me. And, and um, I, you know, ref in my reflection, I started thinking about like the places that I've lived, not just like cities or towns, but like actual homes that I've lived in. And I added them up and I got to 42 different houses in 40 years. And that's a, a I think that that's one of the biggest things that you could look at that impacts who I've become today and, and where I'm at and the anxieties that I've faced in life because everybody needs a home. But if you ask me where my home was, I could answer in different ways. My grandma and grandpa in Utah, and among other people, I would always have a home there if I wanted to go there. No doubt about it. So I have a home there to some degree. I got a home here. Um, I have a home in Hawaii. I have people, Ohana, uh, extended family there. Uh, but I don't know where exactly home home is at this point. And so it's a big, it's a thing for me. Um, my wife and I, for our wedding rings, it says, on a move inside there because we believe, you know, keep moving, move, 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 not necessarily physically like to different houses, but we believe we got to be on a move. We remain stagnant. Life's going to pass us by. Um,
you know, I feel like I'm going, I, I want to progress from the stage of on a move to putting down roots. And uh, my number one goal for the next couple of years and maybe three year, a three-year goal is uh, my oldest is six right now. By the time he's nine, before he hits 10, I've promised myself that I'm going to find a place, a town, a city, a home that we're going to stay in until for, for, for a long time so that they can build, know what it's like to build relationships, friendships, to know what it's like to have those roots with family. And and not saying I've never experienced that, but I've just been always on the go and, I'd say that's the biggest thing that's impacted me is the multiple places I've lived. I've lived in multi, I've lived in like five different states, um, several different cities, but 42 different homes. And so I would like uh, that to change. And I'd like to put down roots and, and find somewhere that I can call home and my family can ho- call home for the long term. You're on mute. Um, and I'm not sure um, how many different facilities you worked at throughout your career. Um, but I was curious, um, did something in particular take place that led you to prefer to teach uh, in comparison to, you know, being in the field, I guess I would say. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I learned that I, I don't want to say didn't want to be a social worker. I, so uh, when I was going to my master's, uh, when I was earning my master's at the University of Hawaii, I'm on now, I had these weird expectations, these really high expectations. Academic books, I'd never, I'd always been afraid, but then I started picking up these books and I started learning things and I was like, whoa, you know, I never looked at things this way. You know, I can't wait to get to grad school where they're going to be teaching us this cutting edge knowledge and, you know, these new ideas that are coming out. And I went to graduate school and if I could be honest with you, at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, uh, the best things about it was meeting the people that I went through with, through it with. But honestly, many of the classes I went to were utter garbage, um, and they didn't teach me any new thing really. Um, and so, what they did was they were trying to train folks to either be a therapist or a caseworker, and I didn't want to be either. I had at that time I wanted to open up a treatment facility. I had these grandiose ideas to go back to Utah and create a treatment facility where I could run it differently and better and, and all those things. Uh, but the problem with that is that since that time that I worked at that Cottonwood Treatment Center that was bought out by Universal Health Services in the whatever the 10 years that had passed since then, the world had changed regarding social work. Um, and like the whole, you don't, I'm not saying every, obviously there's lots and lots of social work programs. Um, but like, they didn't teach us much about like macro social work or doing things differently or being creative or revolutionary or being a critical social worker or anything like that. Um, nothing really. Most of that stuff came from other students. And I'm not saying every teacher, cause I didn't take classes with every professor or anything like that. It was just, um, I didn't want to be a caseworker and I didn't want to be a therapist. Not saying I wouldn't mind like doing some therapy with a few people, but like expecting me to sit down for eight hours a day, 40 hours a week and like, I could barely pay attention to myself, let alone 
some people for that long. And so it just wasn't for me. And so like, I remember in um, the last day of our cohort class uh, for why, like what we were going to do or what we learned. And I said, I don't feel this the same way today, but this is what I said at that time. I said, I learned that I didn't want to be a social worker. Um, because of like the path that was going down. And so I aimed to go out of that. I'd taken that American studies course I talked about with Angela Davis. It kind of recruited me there a little bit. And I went over there studying that. And I, I uh, ended up in the education department at, at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And I spent a lot of time reflection, in reflection over those couple of years after I earned my MSW. And I, what I learned about myself was that I was a really, really good teacher, and I looked at things in a different way than other teachers did, than not all of the teachers, but many other teachers did. I was able to design things and look at things in a different way, um, and I got hired as an adjunct um, at Hawaii Pacific University. Actually, they tried to hire my wife, and she was busy, so she told them to, to, uh, that they should hire me, and uh, that's how I got my first teaching job. But the, those guys, I taught a practicum class at HPU, and at the end of the semester, they took me to dinner bought me an award thanking them for uh, the class that year. Um, and I realized I was a teacher. Even when I was working with those uh, troubled youth back when I was like 23 years old, 24 years old, I was a teacher, you know, like I was the one like creating these, cr these crazy creative groups for the, I like, you know, got high off of it, creating, creation, helping other people, building things that, make other people feel better, that make other people learn. I love it. Um, and, you know, that uh, it's kind of like, again, it's funny how the universe works, right? You have this kid, still, I still consider, even though I was like 23, 24, I still consider myself a kid back then for the way I thought and acted. And you had this kid that had no education and, uh, you know, basically wanted to be a social worker without knowing what social work was. And the universe somehow threw me all the way to Alaska and put me in a, the Bachelor's of Social Work uh, rural cohort and the rural human services cohort in Alaska, where I got to go for weeks at a time. I had the privilege, the blessing to go um, to class with mostly uh, Alaska Native folks, not exclusively, but mostly Alaska Native folks and participate. I, uh, I was like, I got homework to do. I'm hungry. I hated it. And I, I mentioned this in another, in Diane's the podcast that Diane was on, but I hated it. Um, I was like, dinner's ready. Everybody's talking too much. Everybody feels like everybody's whining about all their problems. Like we need to do, we need to get out of here. Uh, but over time, those talking circles fundamentally were transformative for me. And uh, I began to hear everybody's stories and they began to intertwine with mine and they became... Um, Instead of their story and my story, they were our story. And I still have some of the best relationships I have with people in the world are the ones that I established. I believe, anyways, that the universe put me there so that I could take that knowledge, um, the methods that I learned, and utilize them to help other people. 
And uh, ultimately, like the award that I got here, sure, I did a lot of things, and I'm cool and I'm creative, but the talking circle should have got this award because, you know, the first day of class, I uh, told them, for those of you that are familiar with grandmother Rita Blumenstein, if you go into a talking circle, she's going to tell you to share what's ever on your heart. And if you're, not com- if you're not familiar with doing that, that's uncomfortable. And so, like, all these students looked at me like, what the hell are you talking about? Share what's on my heart. But the number one feedback I got verbally from emails and the evals afterwards was that sharing what's on your heart was what did it for them. Um, and so I think what makes me one of the there's probably two things, two or three things that make me a good teacher. One is be that creativity, like being willing to look and do things different ways. Um, two is being able to see my students in a different way. And three is being willing to do something different. It's hard to do things different in. People feel uncomfortable um, when you do something, when I do something differently. And so, yeah, um, again, while social work chose me, also teaching naturally did it. The universe developed me into a teacher, developed me from the worst student in the world that couldn't do anything into what I believe is one of the best. Um, I believe I'm a, I, I really believe I'm a good teacher from the, the way that I do things uh, differently. And so... I would say that I shifted over to teaching because that was the right thing to do. The universe put me there, and it's natural for me. I want to learn more about it with Diane's interview. Yeah, so we got another question from CISA, or maybe it's a comment. I've been sober for 14 years. At the time I stopped, I was drinking probably four to five days out of the week functioning alcoholic. I wouldn't change any of that. I believe all of the experiences I've had led me to be the social worker I am today. I have the experience to back up what I work, what I work to help others with. The experiences were hard or even traumatic, but I think of them as stepping stones building me. I appreciate be yourself authentically. You have the power. Yes. I just wanted to say Cisa, congratulations for the steps that you've taken in your life, and thanks for the comment, and I, I, it's a privilege to know you, and, and I look forward to seeing you on Monday. And then we've got, and I'm not sure who this is, N-A-G, Alaska, and powerful. Some days we just need to hear this getting too consumed by life, and we forget to take care of ourselves when caring for others. Yeah, self-care is important. Yeah, thanks, Anne. You're coming. Well, we could do a couple different things at this point. We could open it up to callers, or you guys, you all can keep asking questions. We're almost at that 30-minute mark. So I I, I did have another question, Professor. Um, So uh, we know that you you have your master's and you're a teacher. do you plan on pursuing your doctrine? And if so, uh, when you accomplish your doctrine, uh, what's what what's next for you after that? Do you plan on going back to Utah and opening that facility, or is that a thing of the past? Or what do you plan on doing with the doctrine if if you plan on pursuing it? Educational foundations. I had developed a research project. Um, about 
uh, on whether critical, excuse me, whether talking circles can build critical consciousness in the classroom. And I did a preliminary research study based on those classes at HPU and UH that I taught as an adjunct utilizing the talking circles. And it was uh, very positive. Um, and so I began developing it, the project, but the pandemic hit during that same time. And A, it's hard to conduct talking circles if you can't, if it's illegal to meet with anyone or and it's gonna make you sick, obviously. Um, and uh, during that time, I lost disconnect. I became disconnected with the program. There was some faculty turnover um, and just the disconnection of the pandemic. The university was shut down at the time. I don't know what UH looks like at this point, but with that, when I left, there was nobody there. Um, and so I moved here to Alaska, took, the, took this job with the UAF, and uh, I continued to pursue that from a distance, and it just didn't work out. I didn't have a connection with the program. Um, so I strongly believe in the project that I had put together and, um, I'm trying to transition into a different program that I can hopefully, since I'm, you know, pretty good measure along as far as the project, it's already developed in, in a lot of ways. I'm hoping I can, uh, find somewhere. I don't want to say too much right now cause it's, I don't know yet, but I'm hoping to find somewhere that, um, I can bring that project to fruition and, um, no, I don't want to, I'm just going to say I don't want to, but the way the world works right now with a treatment facility and how reliant we are on insurance and billing and stuff like that, I would never be, a, I shouldn't say never, but it would be very challenging for me to do things the way that I would want to do them. Um, and so I look at it at getting a PhD as one so I can solidify my role as a professor and I can continue to teach and do research around things like talking circle. I'm really interested in methods, you know, methods and, and, uh, you know, we were talking about us three, we're talking about artificial intelligence, you know, that chat GPT that's coming out, that's came out and the things that it's going to change. Well, in my opinion, uh, education might need a guy like me in the future because I see things differently and do things differently. Uh, it's not going to make much sense to do school in some of the some of the ways that we already that we always have. Like for example, to look at professors' roles back in the days, it would typically be to hold lectures, right? But that's kind of silly in some ways because we have YouTube. You could go watch if it's a popular professor, you could go watch any lecture you want at any time. So that I'm not saying the lecture is meaningless. It just doesn't carry the value that it used to have. Um, as far as like searching and memorizing things and, and whatnot, the way we used to do research and whatnot. Well, whether we think, whatever we think about artificial intelligence, people aren't going to put in all that work to go to the library and read, look through a book when they could ask the artificial intelligence where, what page it's on, if that makes sense, and give them a copy of the page. It's just not going to do it. And this is just the very beginning. So it's changing. So we're going to need new ways to do things as uh, educators. The old ways of lectures and giving exams is going to fade into the past at some point, um, probably sooner than we think. And so uh, I like to think that, you know, um, I can continue to learn, to build what I know, and to create, continue to create new ways um, to educate as we move forward into this future, whatever that is going to look like. But I promise you that it's like we've hit a change like right now in this moment, we're transitioning to a new stage in the world. And so um, I hope that somebody like me will become valuable and I can continue to 
to help people. And I look at like earning the PhD at this point and many, many, if not most things in my life, um, I don't look at it as just getting a degree. I look at it as a spiritual uh, path for myself. That is something that I've got to overcome. Um, you know, I could easily give up on the, the, the PhD and, and the three letters don't really mean that much to me. What it, what means, what it means to me is like, you know, I've had a lot of people that have doubted me from day one until now. And, um, you know, it's accomplishing something that the kid that was laughed out of the college, the early college thing, the kid that was laughed out of his first college class told me to leave because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't college material, you know, I will have. some of the wisdom and knowledge that's been passed on to me and repackage it and hopefully utilize it to help other people um, and continue on my spirits and continue on my spiritual journey. Yeah, it seems like the, the cycle is coming around to new, the new ways are actually like indigenous ways of knowledge. You like the talking circles you mentioned, what other kind of indigenous Yeah, again, the biggest thing is the talking circle. And, but I mean, I think it's, over, it's, it's also like an overall shift in the way you look at the world and you look at things. Um, you know, let me preface this by like, you know, looking at myself and where I come from. Like, I believe, you know, I've done a lot of, spent a lot of time examining like my roots and my ancestry and things like that. And some information is easy to find and some of it's difficult. Somewhere along the line, To the people that made them who they are and whatnot and obviously every family and all people are different somehow we develop like this american culture which is often ex based on externalized things like sports teams and politics and many other things um we make th made these things into american culture but we forgot that there was a lot of time before that that makes up who we are today um and when I look at, obviously, there's a lot of different indigenous. But when I look at indigeneity or indigenous folks, and I look at what they have, what they have taught me and what I can learn from them, it's more than just a talking circle or like a specific method, but it's a way of looking at things like in our culture, you know, it's like a rat race to the top, right? Um, that has no end, right? Our, ideas to make money and build ourselves up so we can have more worldly possessions and have a big house and have more stuff and more stuff and more stuff so that I can get a bunch of stuff and I could say, Hey, look at all this stuff I got. Don't you think I'm cool? Uh, look at all my money in the bank. But when I look at that, so just an example would be,
Yeah, thanks, Alicia, for calling. Thanks for the question. Alicia's my wife, if you all don't know. Um, yeah, you know, kids, you know, one thing that I, I was meant to mention earlier, but, you know, like I mentioned, like, uh, breathing and uh, how that's helped me. But, like, so let's say, like, I wake up one morning and I'm feeling riddled with anxiety and down. If I'm reactive, I won't pay attention to my kids. They'll be asking me for attention, and I'll be thinking about my – I'll be looking at my emails – anxious about it and I'll be ignoring them and, and reacting to them and eventually snapping at them, right? Because they're bothering me when I'm trying to do this very important stuff, like answer an email that I could answer later. There's no way that I could be reactive and, and snap, snappy, angry, mad, um, to my children or to the world if I take five seconds and I look in their eyes. If you look in a child's eyes, there's like a light there, an innocent light that you can't find anywhere else. And we all have that somewhat, I believe. But I look at my kids um, and I remember what they mean to me and what they need from me. Um, and I utilize that to found my life. My first role, I'm a, I'm a professor, a PhD student, a husband. Um, I have many, many roles in my life. But the number one role I have that I view it is, is being a father. Some of the lack of care that I felt like I had growing up only motivated me to later in life to ensure that I, you know, don't overlook my children, that I look at them and that I am reflective on what they need um, and putting fatherhood first and family first, um, it allows me to be the person I am, the man I am today. It allows me to walk with integrity. Um, like I'm different than, than a lot of people. So oftentimes it, it can create like minor conflicts or it can create like, in, I don't know. Um, but as long as I'm a father and I, you know, talk to my kids and, and, uh, do that with integrity and stand tall when it comes to my children, then everything else doesn't even really matter that much. You know, I could get fired from a job or I could, this could happen or, or whatever. But as long as I'm handling my business there and preparing my children to be successful and to be comfortable and happy in life, then I feel like that's my biggest, uh, biggest role. You know, that's what the, the universe wouldn't have given them to me if that, if that wasn't my ultimate role. And so there's a lot of things that I could ways of being I utilize those with my kids you know we hold the talking circle every night sometimes in the morning uh, with school but we have talking circles and you know you think that they wouldn't young my kids are six five and three and when they started they were probably like two four and five um you think that they wouldn't get it but it's like their favorite thing to do we were at the airport um on the way to Fairbanks recently kids and they're sitting in a circle and I was like and my son comes over and I was like what are you what are you guys doing and he's like oh I'm coming over here because I'm leading the talking circle and I'm thinking about what I'm going to say to lead the talking circle and I was thinking that's pretty cool that he just went over there with some other kids in the airport and started a talking circle and they even held I even had Zaid my oldest he he facilitated he opened a talking circle when I did it with um, the cohort that I teach uh, a couple months ago 
live with the same anxieties and insecurities that I did. I mean, there's a counter to that too, because, you know, a lot of the struggles that I went through made me who I am today. So what does that make them if they don't go through those same struggles? It's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing to work out. You know, I don't think there's any easy answer, but you know, I think most of the times as a child, you just need a hug. Don't see any more callers. We had a few more comments in the chat. Um, Anne said, I like your style of teaching because it brings out what we can bring forth as a person. What works for others don't work for me. Thanks, Anne. And Cisa says, I hear you about the rat race to the top. I feel that. Do you feel like with 40 homes over close to the same amount of years, what you have lived a lot, that you have lived a lot, meaning what is around you? Yeah, I mean, obviously, living in a lot of places gives me exposure to a lot of different folks, which has also shaped me into who I am. It's one of the things I'm most proud of is the wide variety of like connections I've made around the world of different kinds of people. Um, but I think of it now as like, you know, despite that shaping me into who I was, you know, some of my favorite memories are about like my grandparents that have had that had the same home for a long time and that you know those homes begin to have a spirit about them and a connection that you that you have with that place and i really want my kids to experience that and i want to experience it as well you know i want to plant a tree and see it grow all the way not just you know be here for for a few fleeting moments but i want to experience the land and create a relationship with it uh like i said put down roots and so um that's how I look at it right now. Any other questions? I can't hear either of you. We got a few more in the chat. Okay. Okay. I'll leave it to you all. Nico, do you want to read some of these sure. questions? Sure. Looks like uh, we're on Deb's comment there. We're on Deb's. This is a mind altering class. I appreciate your teaching and sharing, keeping it teal, which I'm sure she meant keeping it real. Yeah. Thanks, Deb. And next we got, a uh, looks like Doreen. I just want to say thank you for sharing your story with us, Christian. I'm thankfully, I'm thankful to now be a part of your story and feel blessed that you are now a part of my semester and will take your teaching with me moving forward. Then it looks like, I just want to say, oh, sorry. I just want to make a comment that I just want to say thanks, Doreen. It's been a pleasure to get to know you. Um, I just want to say what a great student you are and I'm very happy to get to know you. Um, so thank you for those kind words. I look forward to see you on Monday. Looks like next we have, uh, Yuka. Thank you for sharing your beautiful and powerful personal story. All circumstances. I always tried to be somebody else and it never worked out for me. And even in the present moment, sometimes I try to be somebody different than I am. Like, 
more more academic more academics not the right word but you know more like what you were talking about like a professor should look like feel anxiety and stuff about that all the time but since i've been myself it's what is where i feel the most confident it's it's what works out for me i am i am that i am and i i can work to change to be a better person but i am that i am and um be yourself under all circumstances best advice ever And lastly, it looks like we have Caesar. Oh, hold on. Okay. Um, that's cool about the tree. I planted several and I enjoy watching them grow along with my family. Thanks, Caesar. We do have a caller too down here in Natalia. You want to take that and then get the one from Brad after that? Sure. Hi, Natalia. Yeah, thanks for calling. Good to hear your voice. Thank you. Vaguely, but I don't remember what was said. Yeah, I think going back, it's about the way that things are run with insurance companies and whatnot. And I, you know, it's something that needs a lot more exploration because I mostly have like, an outward perspective on it from participating. And, you know, uh, well, my wife doesn't work for a treatment facility. She works for a corporation that's, that's similar. And I think, you know, we're squeezing everything we can out of social workers and out of the people that need social work. We're squeezing everything we can out of them. And so, you know, it's all, it becomes all about money. For me, it was about helping kids. Yeah, it was cool to make money to do that, and it helped me in my life. But for me, the important part about it was helping the kids. But that's all secondary these days. I'm not saying for everybody or every individual or every single place in the world, but it's, it's about making money and squeezing the kids, squeezing the drug addicts, squeezing the people with trauma, with mental health problems, squeezing them for everything that we can get out of them to make money off of them. Um, and so that's why um, it needs to be changed. There needs to be more flexibility and freedom in, in the way that we can do things and the things that we can charge. If, if, I can promise you this, as long as it's the insurance companies that are dictating what kind of services a social worker can give to somebody else, we're not going to be on the right path. Um, if you th just think about the absurdity of that, of, an ins of insurance companies deciding what kind of services that people can, can receive. Um, and so I just don't, I clash with it. I don't believe in it at all. Um, and so, like... Ideally, do I still believe that a treatment center could work and be a great place for kids or other people? Absolutely. Um, but I'm not going to be squeezed or I'm not going to squeeze. I'm not going to open up a facility and squeeze other social workers because I need to because I need them to work more and see more clients because I need to make more money in order to keep the treatment facility open. I, I'm just not going to do it. Um, and I realize me not doing it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen anymore. 
Um, but I believe in like, at this point, I believe in trying to do things to create a new world where we don't have those kind of treatment centers and we have different kind of something different, you know, where we can really create healing environments for not just the people that are there for treatment, but also for the social workers that are there. Most of us social workers have our own problems and our own history and our own traumas and our own things going on. So if somebody's a social worker and they have all these things from their own past and maybe they've been dealing with it and, and healing themselves, but then they get this great job and they go and they're being, um, whatever it is, a substance abuse counselor, clinical therapist, and they're, they're asked to work with way too many clients that have their own trauma than is reasonable. And then they're tired and they're sad and they become unhealthy and, um, and they end up quitting and then they go to another job and then that same person, that same place hires somebody else. And it's just an ongoing cycle forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And, um, I would like to see a world where, you know, we, where we value social workers. Cause we don't, I'm not saying nobody values social workers, but society doesn't value social workers. If we valued social workers, we would take care of them more. And so it's finding a way to let the world know that they need to value social workers and that we need to value the people that social workers work with, especially those that are disadvantaged. Um, and so that's where I swing, you know, sure. I could go into a treatment center and, and have a great time and work with kids and enjoy it. Um, but I feel like I can do different things at this point in time and I can try to create something different. And maybe that is somewhere down the road, you know, 10 years ago, I wanted to create a treatment center. Now I don't, maybe in 10 years with think the world's had changed or I've changed and I want to do it again. And I call up a few of you old friends and we pull our resources together and we put together a badass treatment center. I'm not ruling that out. That's uh, I think that's totally within the reasonable uh, parameters of what my future could look like, but that's not my goal today. All right, uh, Professor. So moving back to the chat, looks like look like we have B Rad. I like how you teach in both classes. It makes me think more, and I have more fun. I'm glad that I went to your class. Thanks, Brad. Uh, next, we have Island Call. I want to give you your roses, bro. It's hard for some to understand the magnitude of making it out and to make it where you are at li at life. Is something that is impossible for someone who went through what you went through. 100, 100, 100. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Is that? Uh, oh, sorry. I was saying that might be my good buddy, too. If that is, good to, good to hear from you, brother. All right. Looks next, we have uh, Neg, Neg Alaska or some, something like that. That's Anne. Uh, say again? Her name is Anne. Anne. Okay. Um, I agree more uh, time spent on documentation on on the one on ones one hour a week with a person you spent two to three documentations. I love the groups we have me and Caesar hold a group and uh, with I believe that's with our experience makes a big difference for our clients. Yeah, I bet. Um, I bet those groups you hold Ann and Cesar, I bet you they're great. And I just want to thank you for doing that and bringing those opportunities for people to learn and heal with you. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Talk about it. Let's talk about it in class. And Professor Ace, just a side note, uh, Cesar, she's actually my mother-in-law. Oh, see connections all the way around. <laughs> yeah. All world. Two, one degree of separation. Uh, you want to read the next one, uh, Robin? Okay, we've got who 
do we have here? It's Dr. Laverne. Laverne. Thanks for sharing your story, Christian. Super important. I'm inspired by creative teaching methods and look forward to seeing how this continues to unfold for you. Appreciate it. Thank you. That means a lot. If you don't know, if you don't know um, Dr. Laverne, uh, she's one of the people I held in the highest regard. So if you don't know her, I suggest that you sign up for a class or spend some time getting to know her. Is that it? All right. Just a few comments right on from CISA. Hey, hey, pretty cool from Anne and Small World for sure. Nico's the best from CISA. Make sure you tell me some good stories about him, CISA. (laughs) You're in trouble now, Nico. Yeah, well, I just wanted to say, you know, it's it's funny how things things work out. But when I first started this podcast, like I was like, oh, it'd be Two hours is good, but I really didn't know, you know, you don't really know how to know to plan to get there. But all five episodes have like naturally ended right at about two hours. And so uh, maybe the universe is on my side or on our side. I think so. Seems that way. Well, should we get wrapping it up? You have, do you all have anything else? Any last words? Any comments? I would just want to say thank you for inviting me on here. I, you know, honestly was inclined to say no out of fear because, you know, I have this fear of getting a blank mind under pressure or something. But, you know, as I've gotten older, I've learned that when I say no out of fear, I end up regretting it. And so I'm just super grateful that I got to experience this. And also I got to work with Nico, who was amazing like I'm, I'm like getting up on Eastern time at eight and, you know, trying to start my work and emailing Nico and he's emailing me back. He's four hours behind. He's like superhuman, no sleep. So appreciate you, Nico. Yeah. And I just want to say uh, thanks to professor, uh, you know, like before, like I said, when I initially uh, met you. Um, I, you know, I, I'm one of those people that can like feel vibes or feel energy. Um, and a lot of times I, you know, I, at least I feel like I know, uh, uh, what, how people feel or what, what kind of person that I'm dealing with. Sometimes I might be wrong. Uh, but it just so happens this time in particular, I was right. You know, I, I could feel that you had a similar story to mine and you had been through life and stuff like that. And, and again, it's just, it's really, uh, um, it's, it's really, it, it helps, it, it motivates me and makes me, um, you know, it gives me hope and it, and it lets me know that I, I am in the right place. Um, working as a social worker right now um, in a kind of high position, you know, as a program director, it's, it's a lot of times that, you know, um, in meetings and things like that, I don't see a lot of familiar faces, um, you know, so you know, that can, that can kind of end as, you know, a male as well, you know, uh, in a, in a, what I believe is a female dominated, uh, uh, profession, you know, it's, it's, it's good to see someone that looks like me, um, that, that that's doing this kind of work. So I, I just want to say thank you to professor. And, you know, I, I know at some point here in the near future or, you know, whenever, uh, I will be reaching out to you to, to pick your brain and I'll, you know, I'll text you and ask you, are you free? So I can get some advice on different situations. And, you know, I know, I know you'll be able to point me in the right direction. And um, also thank you, Robin, uh, for, 
you know, being open-minded and, you know, taking my criticism, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, man, um, you know, the, what, what I always say is the grind don't stop. So, you know, uh, there's a saying where I come from, you know, you can sleep when you're dead. So you know, <laughs> while I know you need sleep to function, you know what I mean? I also know that you lose time when you sleep. So, you know, that's kind of my thoughts on that. That's all I got. Professor. Yeah. I just wanted to share to reflect a little bit. Um, I just wanted to humbly say thank you all. You did it. You both did a, a great job. Uh, I couldn't have asked, you know, um, for better questions or, you know, the introduction that you did was very meaningful. I really, really appreciate you all coming on and I hope that we can have you again. And I wanted to just based on what you, what you said, Nico, now my, my guest next week is actually a former student of mine. Um, his name is Gerard, but he goes by G. Um, and it's a good example. We're going to talk a lot about like relationships in, in academia, like, for example, I was his professor as a BSW practicum student. He went on and got his master's, and we were able to – we're now colleagues, right? And so we've been able to create a relationship where he's been able to reflect some of the things that he learned from us, but it's a big circle, so we're benefiting each other. And now he's pursuing his LCSW, which my wife is supervising him in. And so it's just going to be a really good example of the relationships that we can create over time, as we, especially as we progress from, like, the professor-student relationships – to colleagues and friends and beyond, if that makes sense. Um, so, so come by next week for that. Um, and yeah, I just want to say it's a, it's a great episode. Um, it's, it was a little bit weird being over here in the hot seat, um, talking <laughs> about certain things. Um, but I'm very grateful that I did it with you all. Thanks to everybody that that uh, called in and that had comments and questions. You know, I think if you I don't know if you saw that in the chat over there, Nico, but Brad saying thanks for challenging him in the blogs last semester. That's pretty cool because you all did have, it was a small little scuffle, but like that shows that we're doing the right work, that you all uh, went apart for a little bit, but it, actually the dialogue brought you closer together. So that's a testament to you, Nico, to you, Brad, and just shows, um, you know, that what we're doing is the right thing. Um, yeah, definitely. You know, that, just a uh, shout out to Brad. Thank you, Brad. Uh, I, I do recall um, and it did open up my eyes. It, it, it allowed me to see a different uh, perspective. So I, I do appreciate those dialogues. You know, I, I tend to try to, you know, hear people out. And, you know, the, you know, shout out to you, Professor, because the way that you set that up, um, you mentioned here today, you know, I, I used to have a problem, you know, just reacting right away. But the way that you set up those blogs, it gives you an opportunity to self-reflect, really think about what you say before you respond. You don't just fire back with anger. You know, so that was a good practice for me because, you know, again, where I come from, you know, people usually don't don't use words. They don't talk, talk their problems out and stuff like that. So I'm forever learning how to communicate how I'm feeling and problems and stuff like that. You know, so so shout out to both of you. Thanks. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for sharing. Um, all right. We're about out of time here. So uh, if you want to follow us more. Check out the UAF social work page. You can also follow um, our little organization, A Conscious Party, on Instagram. Um, and you can find episodes right here on, on the call-in app, or you can also find us, search for us on um, Apple or Spotify after they're recorded. And we're broadcasting here on Call-In Live every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Alaska time. Um, next Saturday, we will have, like I mentioned, uh, my former student and now colleague and friend, G., uh, we'll have a great time talking about that. We'll talk a little bit about the academic journey going from student to professional. Um, 
Yeah, that's it. Until next time, folks, peace. Critical Social Worker is a collaborative effort between the University of Alaska Fairbanks Department of Social Work and a Conscious Party Productions. This episode was hosted by Kristen Stetler, Nico Thompson, and Robin Coro. This has been a Conscious Party production on behalf of the University of Alaska Fairbanks Department of Social Work. You have been listening to The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. Your story, my story, our story.